Early detection of autism spectrum disorder is key in helping children get the proper treatments they need as early as possible in their development. Joint attention is one of these areas that provides a foundation for communication and social interaction. In a recent study funded by Autism Speaks through their Baby Siblings Research Consortium, researchers found some important evidence regarding this developmental milestone. You're listening to ReachMD. I'm Paul Rakuski, your host, and with me today is Dr. Daniel Messinger, Professor of Psychology, Pediatrics, Electrical and Computer Engineering, and Music Engineering at the University of Miami, and Devin Ganji, PhD candidate, Department of Psychology at the University of Miami. Welcome to both of you. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Paul. Thank you. So, Dr. Messinger, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? I'm a developmental psychologist concerned with nonverbal behavior and how babies grow in relationships. And I became involved with autism research through studying the baby sibs, the younger brothers and sisters of children with autism. And really, um, the story begins there. And uh, in my research, we're now uh, incorporating automated measurements of uh, behavior using things like computer vision um, and bringing in a little bit of the genetic angle as well. And Devin, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure. Um, So I'm currently a PhD candidate um, in developmental psychology here at the University of Miami, and I'm working in uh, Dr. Messinger's lab. Um, And most of my research focuses on um, studying the early development of those infants who are at risk for autism. So Dr. Messinger, can you tell us what joint attention is? Joint attention is when a baby, sometime between 8 months, 10 months, 12 months, begins to share their interests about an object or an event, maybe just by looking from the toy to a person. It's like they want to share their experience of of what's happening. Uh, It's different than just playing with a toy. Um, It's a way of involving other people in what they're interested in. And at the same time as they might look from the toy as if to say, hey, what's this? Or, hey, isn't this neat? Um, They're also more responsive when adults and their parents um, try to get them to orient towards a new toy uh, that they might be introducing or something new that's going on around them. So, Devin, can you tell me about the research you and your team have been working on? Sure. Um, So we've been studying the development of infants who are at risk for autism or um, high-risk siblings. And these are children who have an older sibling diagnosed with autism, um, and they themselves are at increased risk for developing autism. Um, So we study their development over the first um, few years of life, and we look at behaviors including things like joint attention um, to potentially look for early markers of autism um, and study the relationship of those behaviors to their developmental outcomes as well. So what is the methodology of the study? Um, So families of infants who are both at high risk and low risk for autism um, participate in our studies, and we study um, the development of these infants over the first few years of life. Um, So every few months from about six months until they're three years old, um, the families are coming into the lab, and they're participating in a number of assessments of social and cognitive development, as well as um, things like how they play and interact. 
And so for this study, when we were looking at joint attention, we were assessing how an infant interacted um, with an examiner who was sitting across the table from them as the examiner was presenting um, a bunch of toys to them. So they're activating things like wind-up toys that are um, doing something interesting. And then we're looking at how the infant is um, sharing attention with the examiner about the things that are happening. So, Dr. Messenger, what kind of data are you finding in your study so far? So, the kinds of results that Devin has found are really quite interesting. In, in this study and the study that preceded it, a couple of studies, we're finding that infant joint attention, the sharing interest in a toy um, with an examiner, with somebody who's interacting with the baby, that that predicts autism symptoms almost two years later, at 30 months. Uh, as Devin went into this study, we knew that um, sharing attention, initiating joint attention with the examiner, that the more you did of that, the fewer autism symptoms we found later on. What Devin did is she introduced the idea of smiling. So, you know, imagine the baby, sometimes the, she winds up this wind-up toy. It's, uh, you know, it's not digital, it's a real toy, and it does something funny and unexpected, like a little penguin waddling around after you wind it up. And uh, some kids will just look at the penguin and look back at the examiner. That's often joint attention. Now, sometimes the babies smile at the toy first, and then they hold that smile and they kind of smile up at the examiner. We call that anticipatory smiling. They're kind of sharing their positive feeling with the examiner. Devin found something very interesting and very subtle. Of all the joint attention behaviors, it's joint attention behaviors that don't involve smiling that best predict autism symptoms. So it's not how much sharing of the positive affect of the toy that predicts the, the symptoms. Instead, it's just when you look from the toy to the examiner without a smile that's predicting these symptoms. And when I say symptoms, what I mean is that um, our team administered the ADOS, the um, Autism Diagnostic Observation Scale, when the babies were two and a half years old. And we used the um, scoring there as a measure of their autism symptoms. And again, what we're finding is that infants initiating joint attention by kind of somehow being aware both of the toy, but also, you know, they're kind of aware that the examiner wound up the toy and they made it go. So when the toy does something funny, they look up at the examiner. That ability to seek out that social information um, was what predicted autism symptoms, but it predicts it in the way that the more looking up you do at a person to figure out what's going on, um, the fewer autism symptoms you show at two and a half. So Devin, are you seeing genetic or environmental factors in your research? Uh, we're actually just beginning to study the role of um, genetics and some of the behaviors that we study um, that may be important for development. So that's an area that we're starting to get into, and we're, we're collecting um, genetic information from our families now. And we're part of a, a larger ongoing project that's collecting genetic information from family members as well. So that's something that we're just starting to look into. So right now we're just looking at how one behavior relates to another behavior. Uh, and as a developmental psychologist, that's, uh, that's really what our large part of our training is about. And what we hope to do next is understand how the genetics influence both the joint attention and, the, and maybe the autism symptoms as well. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm your host, Paul Rakuski, and I'm speaking with Dr. Daniel Messinger and Devin Ganji, PhD candidate. We're talking about the Joint Attention Developmental Milestone and how it relates to the diagnosis of ASD in infants. So we've been talking about the study that you've both been working on. Now I want to kind of switch gears and talk about how, you know, early detection is so important and intervention. Could you talk about that, Dr. Messinger? Of course. So the whole reason we engage in this research is because we're, we're finding and more and more labs are finding that by intervening, by providing uh, therapy with the high-risk siblings, we can improve their outcomes. We can, um, in some cases, lower uh, the symptom burden that they carry, um, improve their language, improve their communication. So by concerted um, behavioral work with the infants, we can improve their outcome. And our science suggests that the earlier we start that, the better. But who should we do the interventions with? What we're finding now is that these studies, such as the one that, that Devin just completed, that infants who are low on behaviors like joint attention, they're low at sharing their experiences with others and getting information from others in their social world about what's going on. Those infants uh, may be particularly at risk for high levels of autism symptoms, and that now allows us to turn around and say, ah, maybe these are good candidates, infants who are good candidates for intervention. Not only do they have an older brother or sister on the spectrum, but they themselves, below one year, below one year, at eight months, at 10 months, and, and at 12 months, um, are showing low levels of these behaviors. Maybe these are the infants we need to especially worry about. So Dr. Messinger, how do you think this research will affect future diagnoses of autism spectrum disorder? I think we have to go pretty slow there. So. It's important to, to recognize that what we're doing is we're finding a behavior early on, joint attention, low levels of that. They predict they're associated with higher levels of symptoms, but that doesn't mean it's a one-to-one -one correspondence. You know, we're not diagnosing these babies at this very early age. We're just finding things that put them at greater risk. So in the future, I expect that we'll continue to look at joint attention, which we know is a big deficit in children on the spectrum. Um, and maybe uh, the development of joint attention will let us uh, move towards earlier diagnosis. So Devin, did you find any greater chance of an autism diagnosis for a younger sibling of a child already diagnosed on the spectrum compared to the regular population? Uh, so in studies of high-risk siblings, um, these younger siblings of a child already diagnosed um, do have an increased risk of developing an ASD diagnosis um, themselves um, and also of exhibiting subclinical difficulties. Um, so in a recent uh, study out of the Baby Siblings Research Consortium, um, about 20% of high-risk siblings were later diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder themselves. Um, and also of those not diagnosed, um, about another fifth tend to have difficulties in, in related areas, such as um, language development or social interaction. So you talked about the uh, Baby Siblings Research Consortium there. So, Dr. Messinger, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So there are a lot of labs like ours, a lot of groups of investigators who are studying these high-risk siblings. 
and uh, Autism Speaks, uh, with help from the National Institutes of Health, um, helped us get together and form a consortium in which we were sharing data, talking to each other, developing research strategies, and now we're publishing results in which we pull our data from, a, from a, several studies showing that uh, about one-fifth of these high-risk siblings um, themselves will have an autism spectrum disorder. Um, and just as Devin said, about another fifth will have difficulties. You know, they might have these higher levels of symptoms on the ADOS, so they might have problems with uh, joint attention or repetitive behaviors or responding to their names. Now, those symptoms may not be enough uh, to get them an autism diagnosis, but there's still something we want to keep track of. And so you're one of the locations for this Autism Speaks Baby Siblings Research Consortium. That's exactly right. The University of Miami is one of the uh, is one of the contributing universities. And how many universities uh, around the country are involved in that consortium? So it's both in the United States. We have several sites in Canada. We have a site in Israel. Um, I think we're up to about twenty, but but I I, I could be wrong. It's an approximate twenty. So with the research coming out of this consortium, what have you learned about the impact on high-risk families? So we know that um, high-risk families are both coping with the diagnosis of the older child and they're coping with their concerns about the younger child. Um, one of the risk factors we found for the younger child um, is being male. So just the fact of being a boy going to increase the risk of an autism spectrum disorder for the younger child, just as it does for all children. Another factor we call uh, multiplex, multiplex status. So what that means is that as a, as a parent, if I have more than one child and more than one child with an autism spectrum disorder, then the uh, odds of my next child um, themselves having an autism spectrum disorder go up substantially. So is there anything that we have not covered that you would like our listeners to know about? From my perspective, the most important thing is that we as researchers and your listeners, as um, folks who are interested in research, people who are affected by autism, family members, parents, that uh, we're in this together, uh, trying to best understand the disorder and um, how we can improve the lives of these children. Well, thank you, Dr. Messinger and Devin Ganji, for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. My thanks again to my guests, Dr. Daniel Messinger and Devin Ganji, PhD candidate, both from the University of Miami. We've been discussing autism spectrum disorder. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. I've been your host, Paul Rakuski, and thank you for listening.